Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. This is Amy Bird, and I'm here with my co-host, Todd Pruitt, who has rudely interrupted me the first five times I tried to start this podcast, and Carl Truman. And today we're going to talk about something that may make people feel uncomfortable. Um, It's a topic that you don't read a lot about these days. Maybe you don't hear a lot of sermons about these days, but it's quite a positive action. We are going to be talking about giving in the church and financial stewardship. So, Todd, Carl, for it, against it, giving. Money. Give your church more money. Uh, well, thank you for being on the spin. I think you've just about said everything that needs to be said on the subject. Yeah, giving is a tricky subject for a number of reasons. One, I think, is that the church can't survive unless people give. And that's very clear from Paul's teaching in the New Testament. But it's a very tricky issue for pastors to raise psychologically because it seems so self-serving, I think. So, yeah, giving is important. It's clearly a biblical principle. We can argue about how much and how frequently, I suppose. But the bottom line is it's clearly taught in the New Testament. The way the church is generally structured, certainly in America and and typically in the West, it does depend upon congregational giving for its survival, for paying the bills, Uh, and yet it remains a difficult and contested subject. Yeah, it's tricky to bring it up because you don't want to constantly harp on the subject because it can feel so self-serving. You also, you know, you don't want to abuse the scriptures, which there's a lot of preaching on tithing that is just not biblical. Many of us, I know I did, I grew up with the idea that the Bible says give 10% of your income every year to the church. Um, and, and then lo and behold, you go and you study the tithe in the Old Testament. And if you're going to say we're going to do exactly what the Bible says, then you're pretty much obligating yourself to give about, what, three tithes of your income of the year because the old testament did not call for a single tithe of income there were a couple of different tithes called for so when i hear a preacher get up and say you know given 10 percent of your income each year you know that's a biblical command well again if you're going to to do it that way then you need to say well actually depending on how you interpret a couple of passages we're obligated to give um, either 30 percent of our income a year plus free will offerings on top of that, or maybe 23% of our income and further offerings on top of that. So I understand why pastors want to say you must give 10% of your income. My problem is when they abuse the Old Testament to get to that place. They offer a, a, an inaccurate view of what the record actually is in the Old Testament regarding uh, the number of tithes required. What I do is I say, well, you know, tithing seems to be a, a biblical principle. Jesus You know, in one of those rare occasions where he said the Pharisees were doing something right is when he mentioned the fact that they were very careful to tithe everything that they had. And so I think that it's fair to say, hey, listen, uh, tithing is a is a biblical principle. We might do it a little differently than than old covenant Israel did and for what it was was used for and that kind of a thing. 
But Jesus seems to affirm it as a continuing principle. And, and so that's how I've preached it, is the typical American family can, if they're being responsible, afford to give 10%. If I'm at a state where I cannot give away 10% of my income, then I need to examine how I'm spending my money in, a, in other areas. Along with that, I mean, because you know, when we talk about tithing or giving, we a lot of times go right to the what percent should we give. Right. And we also you know, talk about a giving heart and, and all those things. But one thing that particularly strikes me in the conversation is giving as an act of worship. Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, I think that's an important part of the conversation. Definitely. Is it's part of our worship service. It is a part of the worship service of, of the people of God. Again, going back to old covenant times. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why we want it to be not as an additional add-on to a service as though it's a separate activity, but understood by God's people as an act of, of well, worship. And, and that's where I think that there's some interesting developments now with our technology and our culture. A lot of people now will give online through the church yes. website and then... It's kind of separate from the, the worship. What do you think about that? Well, I'm, I'm asked about that. I, I'm torn. So so here's, I'll just, my family's practice is we give online and here's why. I'd like to hear it. it it's very pragmatic because that way it keeps us from giving less than we might otherwise do. In, in, in other words, I know myself well enough to know that if I wait, and, and this is just for me, if I wait every week or once a month or once every two weeks to write a check, I might be thinking, hmm, well, you know, this thing is coming up and I might want to. What I noticed was when we started giving through automatic withdrawal, our giving went up because it made us more consistent. Now, we will still, there are times when we will still give in a service for special offerings and that kind of thing. But I, I think this is a really personal deal. It helped me give more. There was actually a division at the Westminster Assembly, I believe, on the issue of whether giving was part of public worship or not. And I think I'm right in saying that a number of the Scottish delegates did not think it was part of public worship. But Scottish worship. people are stingy, though, right? There's, <laughs> there's partly that issue. And for the listeners who don't see what's going on here, my Scottish wife is sitting to my left, and I'm now having to restrain her from uh, administering some street justice to my beloved I mean, brother can, on my right. They can turn a lump of coal into a diamond in their fist in they, about 10 minutes. They certainly uh, can. Yeah. But... I think a little folk memory of that was when I was in the Free Church of Scotland in Aberdeen, the giving plate was outside the the sanctuary. So you'd put your tithe in on your way into worship. Now, I doubt very much if anybody would have given a, a strong argument that giving was not part of worship, but I think that practice reflected an older tradition. And I think the the issue of whether one has to physically put something in the plate on Mm -hmm. a Sunday to be worshipping properly, I'm inclined to think in in a good English pragmatic way, that's something of a red herring. The the real issue is, are you giving? It's not when are you giving or whether you're writing a check or whether you're putting in cash. Uh, obviously, if if you're letting the plate pass you in the service week after week, you're liable to be suspected by other people in the church of not giving anything at all. That would seem to me to be one of the drawbacks of online giving, but I don't think that's a big issue. I think the key issue is, do you give and how much? And you know, here's, here's one thing I've heard 
how would you respond to this? Those who say, well, I don't give financially, but I give of my time. I'm on this roster. I'm on that roster at the church. Uh, and therefore, that's my giving. My, my time is my, my tithe to the church. I'm not going to give financially. My immediate response to that is, well, that's great, but your time does not help pay for the electricity that runs the air conditioning and the light bulbs when we're meeting. But how else might one respond well, to that? I'd say to that person, and, and you know, in a very general way, then that tells me that among your other idols, money is one of them. Um, I mean, you know, well, you'd, I, you'd go for the subtle approach. Absolutely. I want to be very tender. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I have heard that before. I think it's ridiculous. And I, and I personally, I think it's a sin. I think if you are a, a member of a church, you have been obligated to support that church in a financial way. I see that as the pattern going back to the Old Testament. I see that clearly as a pattern in, in the New Testament. Um, you look at Paul's appeals for generosity and appeals to give to the church, and I, I just cannot conceive of the idea that somehow contributing financially to the church is up to the individual's conscience. I might nuance that a little bit by saying I think there are certain people and certain points of life when it can be hard for people sure. to give. I mean, obviously, yep. if, if you're poor and you're struggling to put shoes on mm-hmm. your kids' feet and food on the table, yep. you've got to make a priority of, of, of doing that, looking, looking out for the family. And there I could see somebody saying, you know, I, I can't give a lot financially, but I know that the church needs X or the church needs Y, and I can give my time to that. I, I could see that. Yeah, and, and actually, I have, I have said that very yeah. thing. From the pool. Students might fall into that category yeah. quite often. You uh, betcha. One of the things that I have said repeatedly from the pulpit is that when I when I have talked about stewardship is and, and giving, is I've said, you may be in a position today because of some tremendous loss or, or something like that, where you literally don't have an extra dime. You need to know that you're a part of a church and and what we want to do is not ask you for money, but we want you to let us know your needs so that we can care for you well. So we communicate that well. We have wonderful deacons that make sure that, uh, to the best of our knowledge, we take care of people in our congregation with financial needs. What I encourage our folks to do when I've done a couple of special pushes for for giving is I've I've said that some of you may find yourself in a position where for a season you literally don't have anything to give, and I've I've gone so far as to say you're not allowed to feel guilty here about that. The, the other things I say is. If you're not giving anything, but you can, start by giving something. And then I say, if you're giving every week, but you've never gotten to a level where you've given a tithe of your income, set that as a goal. Sit down with your spouse if you're married, look over your budget, set that as a goal, and and see, see what the Lord does. See what he provides for you there in order to help you do that. And then I say, if you do tithe regularly, pray about what it might look like to go above and beyond that in some ways. Uh, What I don't say is, you know, the Bible here clearly says you must give 10% of your yearly income to the church. I can't find a text that says that. The Bible does talk about tithes, but um, I communicate it in a more pragmatic way Mm. because I I, I don't feel the freedom to say the Bible has a command that we give 10% of our income. So I I argue at it more from an issue of freedom and an issue of 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 kind of personal obligation to think since generosity is good and since we are prone to self-indulgence, how can you help 
work well, against really that. recognizing the giver, you know, when we're giving to the church. But, and I think that's one area where um, there's another issue that I've seen, and it's where it comes in between marriages, spouses not being able to agree. Particularly, I've seen women whose husbands don't go to church, but they do. Yes. And they so badly have a heart to give. And, and they're even maybe in a financial place to where it would be okay to do, but their husband is dead set against it. I've had a conversation with somebody in that exact um, position, and I encouraged her to honor her husband, to be a, a gentle witness in that area, and that we are her church, and we understand her position, and she has... That's got to yeah. be a painful thing, because it I was mean, you for have this that heart, you really mm-hmm. want to give to the church. Yep. And that was, for me, pastorally, that was an easy thing. Mm-hmm. Probably much easier for you than her. Oh, absolutely, because she very much felt bad, and I very much was serious about her not feeling bad, mm-hmm. that her witness to her husband was more important and that that would speak far more loudly in the area where where she needed to focus her efforts. And so, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because there are, I mean, how many churches are there where a wife comes to the church without her husband? And some cases where a husband comes to church without mm-hmm. uh, his spouse. That's going to be a point of contention mm-hmm. because I would imagine in most of those cases, the unbelieving spouse doesn't want any of their income going to that church. Well, I, you know, for me, my counsel would be honor your husband in this. He doesn't know the truth right now, but your gentle witness to him is going to be powerful. And so take care of that. Okay. Well, switching gears, um, should pastors know how much their congregants are giving? Um, yes. And we should have listening devices <laughs> in there. No, um, I don't want to know. I worked for a pastor one time when I was a youth minister in a very large Southern Baptist church. I worked for a pastor who knew the giving records of, of our church. I don't want to know yeah, that. I agree with Todd on that one. But when I was at Cornerstone, I was never involved in counting the offering after the service because I didn't want to know who gave what. I, you're fooling yourself, particularly in a smaller church, if you think you don't have some idea of who's giving what. But on the whole, ignorance is bliss because you've got to preach the gospel to people. You may have to discipline people. And you know, if you know that your church is financially dependent upon the, the tithe of person X, we're all sinful and weak, and it's going to shape how you approach that person. And I think you need a it's a kind of blind trust sort of thing. You need to not know. Exactly. You, I got the monthly figure, but I never knew who was giving giving what. In, in fact, um, there are no members of our session that know what people give. Not a single member of our session. I think that's the case at Cornerstone mm-hmm. now as well. The, the deacons do because the deacons right. count and the treasurer and mm-hmm. the non-elder members of the trustees mm-hmm. because they count. Mm-hmm. There's do. A, there's a, I can think of maybe two people that are privy to that information, but but not the not the pastors on staff, and I don't think a single member of our session knows. And you know, and again, going back to just being realistic, I think it's really unrealistic to think that that it wouldn't affect how we how we treat someone. Yeah. That knowledge, I just think it's unrealistic, and um, and I just want to be guarded from that. So yeah, I think it's a bad idea. I think it's a really bad idea for a pastor to be in possession of that information. Strategies for encouraging people to give are tough. Is a said at the start, I think it's hard for a pastor to preach on this. I did when I was going through Second Corinthians, but I typically didn't preach on it. What we tried, I think probably unsuccessfully to do, 
cornerstone was to get financial reports from the treasurer, have things in the bulletin, try to make people more aware of how much money's coming in, how much money's going out, and how it's being used. I think that probably long term in churches, the the chairman of the trustees or the treasurer becomes a key person yes. uh, in terms of keeping the congregation knowledgeable about what's going on financially and encouraging them to to pay. Mm-hmm. And, and and oftentimes the challenge in a larger church is that it's very easy to come into a larger church and kind of remain anonymous to, to feel less of an obligation to contribute. And that's not just money, but time and, and all those other things, you know, because oftentimes people are attracted to a larger church because they do so many things and I can come and just have. So one of the challenges of a larger church or a church that's growing is how to keep people aware of their obligations. You know, one of the things that I hear pastors talk about a lot is sometimes the problem of designated giving. So someone will give so long as they can tell you where they want their offering to go. And so they'll write on the envelope, you know, that this is just for benevolence. Todd sabbatical. Yeah, something yeah, like something that. Like that, that. Know, something so. worthy. Um, but, you know, ju- just for benevolence, you know, and, and part of that is just self-serving spirituality. Oh, my money is going to help the, the poor. Well, and there's a version of that as well. Those who will give money to needy members of the congregation but don't give to the general fund because then, of course, you get a kind of credibility as a charitable and generous person, but actually you're not giving the money to the general running of the church that other members of the church are doing. Right. Well, and that's, you know, again, what we have talked to folks about is, look, you all love the fact, everybody here loves the fact that we have a roof and air conditioning in the summer, heating in the winter. Everybody wants us to have that. Mm. And so, so all of us need to contribute to that. All of you like and appreciate, you know, the, the the staff that we have. And we've asked all of these people who are here to move here with their families. And and, and so this is not a huge issue in the, in the church where I serve. And I'm blessed to be in a church where when we go to them and say, hey, we have agreed as a church to expand our ministry in this area and to make more efforts of ministry in this area, which, which means necessarily we have to increase the budget for these ministries, um, you know, we we've agreed on this as a church but it needs to be reflected in the giving now that commitment and our church has a really great history of of then responding to those calls and and that's been very encouraging but but communication has been key i don't feel like that's a negative thing the pastors in the session of the church ought to be informing the congregation and and talking with them through these things explaining what costs money, you know, explaining what's going on in these various ministries that have caused the need for greater financial investment to come about. And oftentimes in some of these ministries, the reasons why they're requiring more money is because more and more people have come in to various ministries and we need more supply and we need more resources. And when those things are explained well to the congregation, my experience has been, they say, oh, well, of course, that makes perfect sense. But but you can't just not talk about those things and then come up at the end of the year and say, oh, we need more money from you. Yeah. I just wonder, like, I wonder if the kind of trend of decrease in giving now or trumps we have with giving in the church, if there's any like correlation with the whole delayed adolescence thing, you know, because mm-hmm. we have the household of God here, right? Yeah. And we're all members of a household and we contribute in serving the household and, and financially. But like when you look at your typical like nuclear American family right now, you know, I'm daughter in college. I'm not going to ask her to give towards the household budget, you know, or anything like that. I mean, we just have a whole different picture. In my experience, my exposure to giving began when I was just a child 
in the church and my parents trained me to think about that and part you know and it sounds really small now but i look back and see that it was important so going back to my earliest days putting two quarters in, in my little envelope and giving that on sundays what that did was that taught me a lesson that as a participant in this church it's a good thing to give it's a blessed thing to give when i was in high school and i worked a job my parents asked me routinely are you contributing to the church are you giving a part of your what you're making to the church you know they expected me as a high school student working for minimum wage to give away some of my money to the church and yeah, they were right like to even, expect that even young families a lot of the time will think well once we're you know with the church for a while right. and more committed and more yeah. you know mature or something like yeah. that you know when, when i was a youth intern newly married making fifteen thousand dollars a year my wife and i tithed mm-hmm and my first thought was, well, you know, are we going to be able to afford that? Well, we did. I mean, we, we were always able to pay our bills and we were able to give 10% of our income. You really have to lean on the Lord more in Absolutely. situations like that and, and see, you know, yep. what he can do. Mm-hmm. So it strikes me as a little bit ironic given how politically conservative a lot of American Christians are and consistently complaining about people being subsidized and getting free stuff from the government. <laughs> How many of those people are very happy to turn up to church on a Sunday and get free stuff subsidized by other people? Right. And quite often the people turning up and getting the free stuff subsidized by other people in the church, they're at the richer end of things. Mm-hmm. In my experience, again, the little I know of the giving that's gone on at the church I've been involved in, it's not been the poorer end of the spectrum that hasn't given. It's actually been the wealthier end of the spectrum that has either given vastly proportionally less or even not given at all. And some recent surveys actually bear that out. That's an interesting and I would say disturbing fact as well, that the wealthier people become, the less generous towards the church they they typically seem to be. Yep, exactly. And and, and I would just I would want to emphasize, you know, again, we, we all know of preachers who berate their people over money and and you know you get into some of these you know like the 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 prosperity movement and that kind of thing we we all have examples of that but i can tell you as carl mentioned earlier that most pastors who are decent fellows don't enjoy <laughs> preaching about money and don't enjoy asking for money they'd rather not it's it's hard for them to do it it feels awkward and so when they when they do come before the church and make an appeal it's probably because the church really does need an increase in giving. It's probably not because, uh, you know, he, he's wanting to, to, to build, uh, you know, a second swimming pool. So, <laughs> Well, hopefully this has been uh, an interesting and stimulating discussion, challenging, uh, perhaps a little confrontational at points. We hope that it's given all of you something to think about relative towards giving and the local church please head over now to our website mortificationofspin.org there you'll find yourself uh, presented with a challenge to win something for free <laughs> uh, randy alcorn's book money possessions in eternity and also while we're on the subject of giving uh, we certainly don't want you to cut into your regular tithe to your church to support the mortification of spin but please do remember we are are a listener-supported podcast, and if you have any money left over after your time, please uh, make a donation to help keep us on the air. In the meantime, we wish you well and look forward to being with you next week.
Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... At least from what I was hearing, all the dust that was being kicked up was over a young man, same-sex attracted, identifies as queer. So everyone was concerned about what queer theory in the New Jerusalem will look like. I'm surprised nobody raised any eyebrow over this talk. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. He used to lecture, he said, and he said, you wouldn't believe this, he used to be puffing cigarettes in class. He said, I'd throw them on the one, stub them out in class. It's a kind of awesome world that's now passed. It's a man's world. It should be still that way. See, this is what I'm talking about, Todd. <laughs> Women came along and gave us all these rules, and I hate it. Now you're mansplaining. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah somebody's got to. Yeah. <laughs>